Take your Bible, if you have it there with you, and I invite you to turn with me to a little letter that is tucked away at the end of the New Testament, toward the end of the New Testament. It's the book of 1 John, and this morning we'll be in chapter 1 in the first four verses. And last week we did begin a brand new series from 1 John that we've given the title, God Loves You. And the reason for that title is because the Apostle John uses the word love approximately 45 times in five chapters, 105 verses that make up the book of 1 John. And so the love of God was a message that had changed his life, and it's a message that will change your life. And truly, there is no more precious a truth than the one that communicates the fact of God's love to our hearts. I mean, think of this, the one who created the universe, the world and everything in it, the one who calls the stars by name, who numbers the stars, the scripture says he loves you. And it's not because we are so lovable. Now, I know a lot of people think that they're lovable, and that's why God so loves them, but no, it has nothing to do with the lovability of the object, but has everything to do with The fact that God is love. It's his nature. Love is an attribute of God. And all that he does ultimately is for his own glory. And he demonstrated his great love in that he gave his one and only son as a payment for sin. I read something in a book by David Jeremiah. But he tells a story about one of the last century's most prolific theologians. His name was Karl Barth. But Bart had a multi-volume set called Church Dogmatics. And just to give you a clue as to how many volumes are in that set, it has six million words. But I read that where Bart made a trip to the United States in the 1960s, he was giving a lecture at a college, and someone asked him to summarize the theology that he had espoused in that monumental work. The audience waited for his reply, expecting to hear a profound statement from the theologian, but after a brief pause, here's what he said. He said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now imagine if we were to ask the Apostle John a similar question, his answer would be the same. The message of 1 John is a very important message because within this book, Um, John lays out for believers really the foundational nature of truth and love all within the context of the local church. Which, by the way, you would agree with me that that is a very important balance. The scripture says that we're to speak the truth, but we're to speak the truth in love. Truth without love is nothing but cold, dead orthodoxy. Uh, It will have no impact However, love without truth buys into the spirit of the age and has no power. But John's message is theological in that it presents the truth as it's held in contrast to that which is false. But it's also a practical message because it emphasizes a love that serves as the distinguishing characteristic of God's people. And so John says that a Christian is someone who believes the truth and walks in love. And the truth of God's love 
as experienced through Jesus Christ, this is life-changing. And if it's experienced, it's going to be expressed through a person's life. It will show up in love for other people, especially the believers. And that's what John says in this little book. Now, I want you to look with me in verses 1 through 4 of the first chapter, because really, we find here sort of a prologue to the book itself. The scripture says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. I want to speak from this subject this morning, an invitation to joy. Because that's basically what the Apostle John is doing here in this prologue. He is giving us an invitation to experience real, lasting joy. And notice how that joy is connected with fellowship. Fellowship that is vertical. This is fellowship with God. Fellowship that's also horizontal. Fellowship with fellow believers. In fact, fellowship is an important word in these opening verses because the Apostle John uses it at least four times through verse number seven. Now, we'll look at these verses in just a moment, but by way of simple introduction, I want to mention a couple of quick things. The first thing I want you to notice is a brief biography of John's life as it's presented in Scripture and from church history. By the time that he wrote his first epistle, John is an old man who had a lot of experience under his belt. And even though he never mentions himself by name in his epistles, never mentions himself by name in his gospel, there's some clues that point us to his identity. Now, for one thing, he places himself within a unique group of apostolic eyewitnesses to the life and ministry of Jesus. Because notice there in verse 1, he says, that which we have heard which we have seen, which we have looked upon. He says in verse 2, the life was made manifest and we have seen it. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. And so it's fair to assume that the author of this letter is someone who is in close proximity to Jesus. Now, outside the New Testament, there's the extra-biblical sources from church history that tell us that it was indeed John who wrote this epistle. John had been one of the original 12 disciples that Jesus had called. Uh, He, along with his brother James, together with Simon Peter, they were in the inner circle of disciples who were always with Jesus at some of the most critical moments in the Lord's earthly ministry. When all the other disciples had fled, it was John who was there at the cross. Jesus entrusted the care of his earthly mother to John. Now, history reveals that at some point prior to 70 AD, uh, the apostle John relocated to the city of Ephesus where he served as the pastor of the church there. He spent the remaining of his uh, years there. 
And more than likely, shortly after this epistle is written, John would be sent to a Roman penal colony for his faith where he received the revelation there on the Isle of Patmos. So that's just a brief biography of John's life. But a second thing by way of introduction I want you to consider really is the chief concern of John's letter. Now I know that you've read something or heard something and maybe you were left scratching your head wondering to yourself, well, what was the point of that? I hope and pray that my sermons are not like that and leave you scratching your head at times and wondering what was the point. John is always clear in what he writes. He always explains for us the purpose behind his writing. Uh, For example, he says that he wrote his gospel with an evangelistic purpose in mind. John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. So he says that he writes his gospel with this evangelistic purpose in mind. Uh, He wrote Revelation with an exalting purpose in mind. Uh, He's told in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, by the Lord himself, write what you have seen, what is, what will take place after this. Well, what's the purpose for 1 John, 2 John, 3 John? Well, we know that John writes his letters with an encouraging purpose in mind. Because all throughout 1 John, there are some keys scattered throughout these five chapters that really help us unlock this little epistle. The first key that we find really right here in these opening verses. Verse 3, John says that he's writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Some translations say, so that your joy may be complete. Elsewhere, you get into chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if you do sin, he says, I want you to know that you've got an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He says in verse 7 of chapter 2, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. Verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Chapter 2, verse 21, I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it and no lie is of the truth. Verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And then perhaps most important of all, verse 13 of chapter 5, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So John is writing 1 John so that believers can have assurance. Assurance is something that every believer needs to possess. Some people say, well, you really can't know for sure that you are saved. Let me tell you something. I'm glad that I know for sure that I'm saved. And you can be certain of your salvation, and that's what John is saying here in these five chapters. So as he nears the end of his life, the old apostle, he's writing with a deep, pastoral affection for his flock, and and several times he'll refer to them as little children. He's not being patronizing by doing that because he's probably around 90 years of age, and when you're 90 years of age, you can refer to anybody you want to as little children. But this is the spiritual father who's speaking to his spiritual children, And, and, and really, it's an expression that reveals the love of God deep within the apostle's heart for those who look to him as a spiritual shepherd. 
And he's writing to believers who are in the world in order to show them that they're not of the world. And he wants them to live with this assurance that they are indeed the children of God. So again, these first four verses of chapter 1, this is a prologue to the book. And in this prologue, the Apostle John explains for us the essence, the evidence, and the emphasis of biblical Christianity. He's going to tell us what it's all about. So notice with me, number one, what John has to say about the essence of biblical Christianity. Notice how he begins, really in a straightforward way. He says, that which was from the beginning. And what is he talking about? Well, he tells us at the end of verse one, it's the word of life. That which is from the beginning, the word of life. So really, there are no introductory statements here. There's no mention of himself. There are no personal greetings, and that's unlike the letters of Paul or Peter or even the apostle James for that matter. But John just immediately jumps into the issue, and here's the issue. What is Christianity? If we were to ask anyone in High Point this morning, what is Christianity, we would be surprised by the answers that we would hear. Some years ago, there was an interviewer who went into the streets of a major city asking that very question. And there were some who said, well, Christianity is a religion. One person said, Christianity is the American way of life. Another person said, Christianity is a set of ethical principles to live by. Another person said, Christianity is a tool being used by the capitalist to exploit and depress the poor. That same interviewer asked a follow-up question, who is Jesus Christ? What is Christianity? Who is Jesus Christ? And the answers to that question ranged from a good man to a moral teacher or a mythical figure who didn't even really exist. Now folks, listen, lest we assume that the world has an understanding of what Christianity is, and lest we assume that the average churchgoer has an understanding of what Christianity is, the Apostle John is going to explain to us what it really is. And the situation in his day was similar in that a lot of people thought they knew what it meant to be a Christian, but their ideas were far from the truth. And so John writes to clear up this confusion, and he's separating fact from fiction, truth from error. And you'll notice that really verse 1 all the way through the end of verse 3 is one single sentence there in the original language. Uh, Linguistic scholars point out the fact that the word order in these verses is among the most unusual sentences in the New Testament. Because for starters, no other book begins with a relative pronoun. The ESV text, which I use, 1 John begins this way, that which was from the beginning. Or some translations say, what was from the beginning. And you'll notice there are really four relative pronouns in this opening verse, and the main verb in the sentence doesn't even appear until we get to verse 3. It's the verb proclaim. So John is saying that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. And what he's doing here, he's building emphasis. And the emphasis, it's not so much on his experience, but the emphasis is on the word of life that's referenced there at the end of verse number one. And so verse two, this is a parenthetical statement. And that's why in the ESV text, you see two dash marks, one at the end of verse one, the other at the end of verse two. 
So that means you could literally read what John is saying this way. We proclaim to you that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen, that which we have looked upon, that which we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So he's bringing our focal point to this word of life, which he says was from the beginning. He's not saying that it had a beginning. No, he's saying it's from the beginning. The word of life is that which was from the beginning. What exactly is the word of life? Well, the better question is, who exactly is the word of life? Because John says he has seen this word up close and personal. He has heard this word. He has handled this word. This word is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. And his statement here in 1 John 1.1 is so similar to the statement he makes in his gospel, John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John says he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. Without him, not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In fact, three books of the Bible really begin in this way. You've got the book of Genesis that begins with an emphasis on this word of God. Light and life associated with this word of God. John's gospel begins much in the same way, and now 1 John is beginning much in the same way. So here's what John is simply saying. He's saying Christianity, if you want to know what it is, it's Jesus Christ. Christianity is this word of life. Without Jesus Christ, there would be no Christianity. So a Christian is someone who's come to embrace the word of life. Someone who's in possession of eternal life. Someone who's come to know God through personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's Jesus Christ alone who makes this reality. Now what's amazing, in in his gospel, John's main concern is to prove that Jesus is none other than the word made flesh, the eternal son of God. And the purpose of the Gospel of John was to write about that word, to prove that the word was God incarnate and that he came to bring salvation. So the Gospel of John was written to the unbeliever to bring the unbeliever to faith in Christ. Well, the epistle of 1 John was written to believers not to bring them to salvation, but to deepen their confidence in this word to deepen their confidence in the work of God and their assurance. In his gospel, John's desire for the reader is that through the record of the life of Jesus that they might receive life. And now, in 1 John, his desire for the readers of this letter is that they might fully enjoy the life that they've received. I want to ask you a question. The first question is an evangelistic question, and it's the question, have you received life? Have you by faith, have you come to Jesus Christ and received the gift of eternal life? Now, if you've received that, the follow-up question I want to ask you is this. Are you enjoying that which you have received? Because let me tell you something. I feel like far too many people in the church are enduring their Christianity rather than enjoying their Christianity. God didn't give you something that he just merely meant for you to endure your way through life. And for so many people, they think, well, eternal life, this just means that I get to go to heaven when I die. 
And yes, that's true. Thank God. But let me tell you, God has given you something that you can enjoy now. Eternal life is not something that I come to possess when I die. Eternal life is something that I possess now as someone who's been made alive in Jesus Christ and possesses this word of life that John is describing here in his epistle. So John is writing his letter to give believers this ability to evaluate the reality of their faith and be confident of their salvation. And he says we can have absolute assurance that we have eternal life. And there are at least four tests throughout 1 John that he will give believers. Tests that we can apply to our lives. You've got the confessional test. Verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1. I can know that I'm a Christian if I've confessed my sin to God. There's the doctrinal test. I can know that I'm a Christian if I believe that Jesus is the Christ. Chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. John says there's the ethical test. I can know that I'm a Christian if I obey Jesus He says in verse 3 of chapter 2, by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. So he's emphasizing a true believer lives a life of obedience to Jesus. I know none of us are perfect. That's not what John is saying. But what he's saying is where there has been conversion, there will also be consistency. And then there's the social test. Because he says in chapter 3 verse 14, we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. In other words, I can know that I'm a Christian if I love other believers in the family of God. So the essence then of Christianity, John wants you to understand something about the Christian life. It's not an achieved life. It's a received life. Something that you receive through faith in this word of life. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's a second thing here that I want you to see, and it's this. Notice the evidence that John presents for biblical Christianity. Having said a word about the essence of the Christian life, now he's going to talk about some evidence for the faith. Because look at what he says in verse 2. He says, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it. And we testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and made manifest to us. So he's saying that Christianity is not founded upon speculation or theory. We don't hang our hopes on some invisible sky hook. No, it's substantiated by the facts of history. Let me tell you, that puts Christianity in a category all by itself. Christianity is an historical faith. Founded upon an historical event in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that John points out the fact that, first of all, he says there's been an authentic manifestation. He says the life was made manifest. At the end of verse 2, he says that which was with the Father was made manifest to us. So he wants his readers to know that the word of life himself has wrapped himself up in flesh and he's come to where we are. He wasn't some make-believe figure from some fairy tale. 
John is not giving his opinion here. This is not some story that he's made up. No, he's telling us that the Son of God entered time, space, and matter and walked among us. He wasn't a phantom. He wasn't some figment of man's imagination. No, God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. So that what was invisible became visible as heaven came down to earth. And someone says, why is this so very important? Well, it's because of some false ideas that the churches were dealing with in John's day. There was a certain philosophy that was gaining traction in the first century, and it was a philosophy known as Gnosticism. That word comes from a Greek word that means knowledge. And basically, Gnosticism taught that the way of salvation was through this secret knowledge granted to the initiated. Surely there had to be more than just the plain facts of this gospel message that you apostles are preaching. That's not sophisticated enough. We need to have some better wisdom, some more secret knowledge. And so Gnosticism bought into Greek philosophy and so many of the cultural ideas that were popular in the day. And basically Gnostics believed that a person's physical body was bad, but their soul was good. And some of these very ideas had infiltrated the church through various forms of this false teaching. And listen, it led to two extremes in the church. On one hand, it led to this legalism whereby one punished the body in order to free the spirit because the body was bad. Well, other folks took it in the opposite extreme, in a liberalism or license that said it doesn't matter how you live, what you do with your body. Live any way that you want to because the body is bad. It really doesn't matter what you do with it. Which, by the way, those two extremes are still around in the church today. Legalism on one hand. I've never met a joyful legalistic person. Every legalistic person I've ever met was absolutely miserable. And they want you to have what they've got. I want to say, why in the world do I want what you've got if it makes you look the way you look? But then the other issue that may be more prevalent in today's culture is just this liberalism that just says you live any way you want to, doesn't really matter how you live, and you can use grace as an excuse for that. And the Apostle Paul deals with this in Romans chapters 5, 6, and 7. So beyond this, there were these Gnostic ideas led to some major doctrinal errors in the church, all centered around the person of Jesus Christ. One of those ideas said that Jesus didn't have a real human body, but only appeared to be human. Again, the body is bad. And so that meant that the Son of God, he couldn't have had a real body if the body is bad. He only appeared to be human. Another idea said that Jesus had a real human body, but he was an ordinary man and not God in human flesh. So the errors then that John is dealing with in 1 John, there's an error that denies the humanity of Jesus, Gnostic ideas denying his humanity, and then there are Gnostic ideas denying his divinity. And you say, you know what, I sure am glad that all that got taken care of in the first century and we don't have those ideas still being peddled today. Don't think for one second that these ideas have gone away because they haven't. They've only changed clothes. They go by different names. And oftentimes, we call them something else entirely today, such as Jehovah's Witness or Mormonism, both of which deny the deity of Jesus Christ. 
in the humanity of Jesus Christ. Even Islam. Islam denies the humanity and deity of Jesus Christ. So these ideas, folks, the enemy, he, he still, there's nothing new under the sun. He just takes these same old ideas that have always been around and he repackages them and gives them new clothes and calls them something else. So there's an authentic manifestation. This is evidence, John says. We've seen this word of life made flesh. And then notice that leads to an apostolic declaration. Because he says in verse 2, the life was made manifest and we have seen it. What's the evidence? He's writing from an eyewitness perspective. And at least 12 times, John uses plural first-person pronouns. We, us, our. And in so doing, he's including himself as part of this group of apostolic eyewitnesses who testified to the life and ministry of Jesus. And John says, we can testify to what we've seen. That word testify, it's the same word we get the word martyr from. It refers to someone who's personally witnessed something. So John is presenting here some objective evidence for Christianity. He's an eyewitness. He says, I've seen it. I've heard this word of life. I've handled it with my own two hands. And there's some subjective evidence also because John says, my life's been changed by what I've heard, by what I've seen, by what I've handled. And so Christianity is based upon evidence that comes to us on the authority of the apostles themselves. I could say more about that, but I've got to move on. Authentic manifestation, apostolic declaration. But what about this? Essential proclamation. Look at what else John says in verse 2. He says, this life was made manifest. We've seen it. We testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. He says it again, verse 3. That which we've seen, we've heard, we proclaim also to you. So the, the, the evidence of Christianity is not something that we can keep to ourselves. John says, I'm compelled to proclaim what I know to be true. One of the evidences that you've got salvation is that you want somebody else to have what you've got. <laughs> and if you don't want anybody else to have what you've got, you probably don't have the real thing. Amen. Are you listening? Because there is an evangelistic zeal. There is a passion within the heart of every authentic believer. I want the world to know what I've gotten in on. I want my neighbors to know. I want my family members to know. I want my coworkers to get in on what I've gotten in on. And that's what John is saying here. I'm proclaiming to you this message. Preaching to you this message. Declaring to you this message. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British preacher of yesterday, said that the gospel, according to the New Testament, it's a herald. It's like a man with a trumpet calling people to listen. He said, we're ambassadors, and the business of an ambassador is not to say to the foreign country what he thinks or believes. It's to deliver the message which has been delivered to him by his home government and the king he represents. We are ambassadors. The church is an embassy of heaven. And let me tell you, the gospel is the news from a far country that God wants us to declare to the whole wide world. Amen. One final thing that I want to draw your attention to, really verses 3 and 4, it's the emphasis. The essence of biblical Christianity, John says it's Christ. 
It's not an achieved life, it's a received life. Christianity is Christ. The evidence for Christianity, John says, we've heard it, we've seen it, we've handled it. We're declaring that to you, proclaiming it to you. But then what's the emphasis of biblical Christianity? In other words, what's it all about? Look at what John says there. He says, that which we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So he's saying, Christianity, it's all about fellowship with God. It's all about being in right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. The emphasis is that of fellowship. The word fellowship, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of it. If you've been around the Baptist church for a long time, I guarantee you probably a piece of chicken somewhere comes into that definition. Or some sweet tea. Fellowship hall. Shaking hands. All of that's real and good, but that's not the biblical word here. The word is koinia. It's a word that means communion. It speaks of a shared life, a common union. And this common union or fellowship that John describes has both a horizontal dimension as well as a vertical dimension. On the horizontal level, he says, we proclaim this message to you so that you may have fellowship with us. Salvation places me into a family. Christianity involves being a member of the family of God. And it overcomes the hostility between man and his fellow man. Why is it that we human beings experience so much friction in our relationships with each other? Why does it seem that our times, that just seems to be, everybody just seems to be so divided in their own separate corners? Hostility being leveled from all sides. The answer is because of sin. It's human nature for us to look out for number one. And that's, an, that's pretty much an adequate description of how the world operates. James says, what causes wars and fights among you? Is it not this, your lust, your passions, which are at war among you? The reason that man is at odds with his fellow man is that man is at odds with God. Because humanity is alienated from the life of God separated from the life of God, cut off from the life of God. And that's why life in this world without God, it's a living death. And the world wants life, and the world says, well, I think I can find life through more stuff. But there's no life in more stuff. I think I can have life if I just have more relationships, but there's no life in that. Through illicit sex and living a loose life. All of it. That doesn't provide any life. John says if it's life you want, let me tell you where you can find life. And the source of life is the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of life. And life involves you being made right with God. Being in fellowship with God on the vertical level. And when you're in fellowship with God on the vertical level, then and only then will you be in fellowship with your fellow man and the church on the horizontal level. And so John is saying, this is what Christianity is all about. I want to bring this to a close. But before I do, I want you to see some practical implications of what John is writing here in this prologue and why this is so very critical. Oh. And the first thing is this. You need to know that eternal life is not 
achieved. It's something that's received. Eternal life is received, not achieved. And this flies in the face of man's religion. John says Christianity, it's not spelled D-O, it's spelled D-O-N-E. And I receive Christ's life by faith. Turning from my sin and placing my faith and trust in Jesus alone. And the Christian life, it's not so much one of emulation as much as it is one of participation. You're made alive in Christ. You're born again. Conversion happens. New life is imparted. Eternal life. And that really isn't not so much quantity of years as much as it is quality of life. We think eternal life, again, this is something for me when I die. No, it's something for you now. You can receive now. A second implication is this. Fellowship is horizontal as well as vertical. Jesus died to reconcile sinful man to a holy God so that you can be in fellowship with God. And Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Which means he has reconciled us to God, which means we now have fellowship with God and with one another as believers. And the last thing I'll leave you with is this. Joy is not dependent upon circumstances. Because look at what John is saying there as he finishes this prologue there. Verse number 4. What is it that he says here? Listen, this is my emphasis. We're writing these things so that our joy might be complete. Joy. There is joy in Jesus. If you want joy, that joy is found through fellowship with God. And John says, this is what we've seen. This is what we've heard. This is why we're proclaiming this to you. So that you too may get in on this fellowship. An invitation to fellowship. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Folks, I'm telling you, someone has said that joy is the flag flown high from the castle of my heart because the king is in residence here. You know Jesus Christ. Is that true of your life? It ought to be. The evangelistic invitation this morning is simply this. If you don't know Jesus, if you've never been saved, right now, right there where you are, turn from your sin, place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ alone and be saved. Believe that he died for you on the cross to pay your sin debt and that he rose again from the grave. Confess him as your Savior and as your Lord. This is why the gospel is good news because the Christian life, it's not not an achieved life. It's a received life. It's a gift. Eternal life is a gift. And those of you who are believers, this is the question I want to ask you. Are you enjoying eternal life? Are you enjoying this word of life that John is describing here? Because listen, you ought not have to endure your Christianity. God wants you to enjoy what he's given to you. 
Every head bowed, every eye closed. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, how we need you. Lord, thank you for the gift of eternal life. Thank you for the precious promise of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And Jesus is this word of life made flesh. And God, may we take this message and preach it to our city, proclaim it to the ends of the earth and make disciples for the glory of God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.